Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, well, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get there here in just a little bit. Um, a while back, I read an article online by a guy named Ben Sixsmith, which, first off, awesome name. Like, really awesome name. I asked my wife if we could name our next kid Sixsmith, and she said, absolutely not. Uh, she also reminded me that we're not having any more kids. So that checks out. I mean, it's good logic, but I was just still a little bit sad about it. Um, but this guy, Ben Sixsmith, he, he wrote an article that really predominantly was about the phenomenon of the celebrity pastor. Uh, if you're new to church and you don't know anything about that, good for you. <laughs> but that's what the article was about. So it was about the phenomenon of celebrity pastors. And Kind of at the same time, it, it was about an approach to Christianity in general that uh, Mr. Sixsmith had observed just in the world. He called it the with a twist of Christianity approach to faith. Basically, that was the phrase that he used to describe people who, who claim to be Christians but whose lives don't really look distinctly Christian at all, at least on the surface. People whose lives, if you met them, would probably look nearly identical to any other person that you met, Christian or not. The only discernible difference between these people, the, with the twist of Christianity people, and the rest of the general population is that for an hour or two on Sunday mornings, these Christians attend a pep rally of sorts with other Christians known as church. They, they show up there on Sunday mornings, they, they nod their head in agreement with what is said and sung in that setting, and then they return home afterwards to go about their lives approximately the same way that they would have anyway. So it's, it's just your normal run-of-the-mill approach to life, but with a twist of Christianity, almost like you would add a twist of lemon to your sweet tea, which is the correct way to drink sweet tea, by the way. I just feel like now is the time for me to make that stand. But the idea with this approach to faith is that you just sort of sprinkle a little Jesus on top of everything else you've already got going on. Now, what was interesting to me about the article was to hear what the author, Ben Sixsmith, thought about this approach to faith. He, he wasn't a follower of Jesus at all. And so I think I half expected him to really like this approach to Christianity. Because after all, that would mean that it doesn't really require very much attention or intentionality or effort to secure an eternity with God. You just approach your life much like you would anyway, except now you get Jesus' blessing on top of it all. But much to my surprise, that was not his take on this approach to faith at all. Here's what he said at the very end of his article. He said, I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. 
If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Now, note for just a second how counterintuitive that quote is in its content, at least to most of us. According to Ben, Christians whose lives look virtually the same as everybody else's, they aren't especially inspiring at all to the outside world. In fact, it would seem that to him, faith becomes more relevant the more different it is from the world at large, not the more similar that it is. To to him, faith should set a person apart. Otherwise, it's not really worth anything at all, at least in his eyes. And I would argue that Jesus feels much the same way. More on that here in a bit. But here's why I think that this idea is so important for us to get as followers of Jesus. Over the past 20 or 30 years, a shift has taken place, at least in the U.S. And whether you've noticed this shift or not, I can just about guarantee that you have felt the effects of it. So 20 or 30 years ago, society in general had a largely positive perception of Christianity. So if you were a Christian, it was thought that probably meant that you were a decent citizen, that you were trustworthy, that you were a morally upright person, so on and so forth. Now, we could debate all day long about whether or not that was an accurate perception of all Christians at the time, but it was the predominant perception. Even if people around you didn't share your faith, they usually at least respected it. They, they admired it. They looked up to it back then. They saw your convictions and they thought to themselves, wow, I really wish I had the moral fortitude and conviction to live life in that way. You were often respected just by virtue of people knowing you were a follower of Jesus. Now, that was then. Fast forward with me to today the year 2023. Today, when someone in your life finds out for the first time that you are a follower of Jesus, would you generally say that makes them respect and admire you more as a result of knowing that? When a coworker of yours finds out that you follow Jesus, is their response generally to go, wow, I'd really like to learn from you about how to approach my decision-making and my life in general and specifically my sexuality? Is that the response? I think at least generally speaking, the answer to that would be no, right? That's just not the dynamic anymore. Now, we are in the middle of the Bible Belt still, and so we've still got some remnants of that dynamic from a few decades ago hanging around, sort of lingering in the air here in Knoxville. But increasingly, that is not really the situation that we're in at all. That is no longer the primary sentiment towards followers of Jesus in today's world. This is the shift that I'm talking about, that I think we have to learn from and accept as followers of Jesus. More and more in today's society, Christians are not seen as more moral and more trustworthy than everyone else. Sometimes they're seen as less so. If you're a follower of Jesus today, it's generally assumed that you have a rather outdated view of things like equality and sexuality, that you're sort of in the way when it comes to society improving and progressing into what it needs to be. So it's no longer that people see the value in becoming a Christian and simply find it to be too high of a calling to pursue. It's that many people don't see the value in it in the first place. Now, Christians and churches have responded to this new dynamic in a number of different ways. 
Certain Christians have sort of dismantled their faith entirely, choosing to toss out any convictions that feel out of touch with the society around them. Certain churches and church denominations and church traditions have actually done the same, sort of revising their positions on key doctrines to alleviate some of the tension with the world. And the thought there, whether it's said out loud or not, is that if we more closely align our beliefs with that of society, then Jesus will seem more relevant and appealing to society as a result of that. Other church traditions out there have have kept their beliefs more or less the same, but they've chosen to update the container that those beliefs are held in. So they choose to give their faith sort of a makeover on the outside to make Christianity seem more appealing on the surface. So we look for ways to make church more exciting, right? So we'll install killer lighting rigs in our churches, maybe some lasers and fog machines just for good measure, right? We'll hire the best musicians that we can find out there. We'll have them play secular songs on stage from time to time. I specifically remember a pastor a number of years ago bragging that his worship band at his church could play the song Thunderstruck better than ACDC could. Which, first off, I doubt it, right? Like, I mean, ACDC is ACDC. But second, even if they could, was, was that really the problem we needed to solve? in the American church was to learn how to play Thunderstruck better. That's the thing that's gonna bring all the people in. So some churches instead will try to be relevant with their sermon series. So we'll we'll do a series about how the gospel is is just like one of your favorite all-time movies and we'll show parts of the movie there in the church service with popcorn, right? So you get the whole experience. We'll have our our pastor dress really well on stage. I'm very sorry, t-shirt and jeans is kind of our vibe around here. We'll have our our pastor dress really well on stage. So Gucci, Louis Vuitton, right? They'll use really hip lingo in in their teaching. They'll talk about all the latest TikTok trends and celebrity gossip, and they'll use all of that as illustrations in their sermons. This is the approach that a lot of churches have taken to the cultural situation that we're in. Now, please... Hear my heart in bringing this up. My intention is not to just stand up here and dog other churches or other church traditions. If you've been around our church long, you may have picked up on the fact that none of those things are really our vibe around here, and there's reasons for that. But deep down, I want to say I get why those churches do those sorts of things. I really do. I think behind at least a lot of it is a good core desire, and that's to reach more people with the gospel. My concern with those attempts to reach people for the gospel, though, is that they may be doing more harm than good. My concern is that in taking that approach to church, we might be embodying what Ben Sixsmith called with a twist of Christianity. My concern is that it is essentially appealing to people by going, look at how similar Jesus is to all of the things that you already like. Look at how similar Jesus is to all of the things that you already prioritize in your life. Look how cool and hip and relevant Jesus is, and he can help you be all of those things too if you follow him. That's basically the pitch, whether it's stated that way or not. And I'm nervous about us sending that message to people when the message of the Bible is so much different than that. The message of the Bible is look at Jesus, look how different he is than anything else. 
Look how much better he is than everything else. Look how distinct he is from the way of the world. Look how much better his way of life is than anything else that you've tried in your life so far. That is the message of the Bible. Not that Jesus is just like us, but that we by his power can become more like him. You see, while making the church trendier and more socially attractive may feel like a very pragmatic solution in the short term, I don't know that it accomplishes the right things in the long term. I don't know that it gets us very far down the road of helping people become more like Jesus. For that, I actually think a very different approach is needed. To reach the world with the gospel, I don't think we need to be more like the world. I think we need to be more like Jesus. For Christianity to be appealing, to be attractive, it actually doesn't need more sameness with the world. It needs more difference from the world. And if articles like the one that we read earlier are correct, then that will actually draw more people to Jesus, not push them away. But to be honest, this idea of followers of Jesus being different from the world, it isn't original to, to me or to Ben Sixsmith or anybody else. It was, it was actually Jesus' idea all along. So with all of that in mind, I want us to take a look at Jesus' vision for his people, for the type of community that his people should be. So take a look with me in your Bible, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. This is Jesus speaking to followers of Jesus. He says this. You, and that word you is actually plural in the original language. So in East Tennessee dialect, it would be y'all, right? Y'all, all of you followers of Jesus collectively are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Okay, so salt in Jesus' day was sometimes used as seasoning, like we use it today, to add flavor to food. But more often than that, best we can tell, it was used as a preservative for food. In a world before any type of refrigeration existed, you needed some way to keep food fresh and edible for longer periods of time, specifically meat that would otherwise go bad. And one common way of doing that back in the day was to salt the food. So the physical properties of salt would remove moisture from the food, which significantly slowed down the rate at which the food would spoil. So when Jesus turned to the crowds that day in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, as he was teaching and he said, hey, y'all are the salt of the earth, his audience would have immediately had a picture in their heads for what that meant. He meant that they were to be a type of preservative for culture at large. They were called to keep the world from going bad, so to speak. Now, this is important. We are not called to do that by yelling at the culture about all the ways that it's going bad. We aren't called to do that by condemning and arguing with the world on our social media accounts. We aren't called to do that by withdrawing from the world altogether and ranting among ourselves, among people who already agree with us about how bad the world has gotten. None of that is what Jesus means here. Because none of that is how salt preserves food. How does salt preserve food? By existing in close proximity to the food, but maintaining its own distinct physical properties. 
So then, how should we, as followers of Jesus, preserve society? By existing in close proximity to it, even within it, but remaining different and distinct from it. That's the idea. By being a faithful, countercultural witness from the culture while being within the culture. This is God's design for how his people should live. As a culture within a culture, a society within a society, or as he puts it next, a city on a hill. Sounds like a good name for a sermon series, maybe. Look with me at verse 14 in the passage. You, and again, that's y'all, you all collectively are the light of the world. A town or a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So here we have roughly the same idea as before, but with a couple new word pictures to help us understand it. This time, Jesus says, we are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. So cities at the time were often built with really visible material, like white limestone was a really popular one, which meant that during the daytime, when the sun was out, the sun would reflect on the city itself and the city would almost glimmer and shine in the distance, making it visible from a really long ways off. At nighttime as well, the hundreds or thousands of lamps that people lit within the city would collectively give the city a sort of warm glow against the night sky. And especially if the city was situated up on top of a hill, like Jesus says in the passage, no one would be able to miss it. In fact, you would see it from miles and miles away. So travelers out in the wilderness, exhausted and beaten down by the harsh conditions of the desert, they would see a city off in the distance and they would see in their minds survival, respite, resources. A city on a hill up ahead of you if you were traveling through the desert meant life and hope and rest and community and people. Jesus is saying that that is what his followers are called to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, such that people who have been chewed up and spit out by the way of the world can find rest and hope and healing. That is what we are called to be as followers of Jesus, as a community of followers of Jesus. So Jesus says next in verse 16, he makes it really, really plain for us, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So here's why Jesus is calling us to be different in the first place. We're not just called to be different for difference's sake. And we're certainly not called to be different for our own sake, for our own glory. Jesus gets into that, correcting against that in the next chapter of Matthew. Salt and light both exist for the benefit of what's around them for the food they're preserving, for the darkness that they are shining light into. So in the same way, Jesus says, let your differentness as followers of Jesus show, let it shine before others so that they might see your differentness and glorify or worship God as a result. That's the goal. That's why we're here. That's why we exist as a community of Jesus. But at the same time, Let's remember that the first metaphor Jesus mentioned, salt, it came with a warning. Jesus said, if salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything. 
In other words, if, if followers of Jesus cease to be discernibly different from the society around them, then there is no longer anything compelling or helpful about them. Or, in the words of Ben Sixsmith from earlier, there is nothing especially inspiring about them. For salt to serve its purpose, it must remain salt. For light to serve its purpose, it must remain light. If either of those things lose their distinction from their environment, their discernible difference, they cannot serve their purpose. But when they do maintain their difference and distinction, they operate just like God intended. The world is made better and God is glorified as a direct result of it all. So the question that we are trying to answer in this series is this, in what ways specifically are we called to be a city on a hill? How are we called to be different from the world for the sake of the world? That's the question we need to answer. Now, not to put it too broadly, but the answer to that question, in what ways should we be different from the world, the answer is in all the ways. In all the ways. There's virtually no limit to the ways that we see in the scriptures that we are called to be different and distinct from the world around us. In every arena of our life, every aspect of our hearts and minds, we are to be distinct. In some ways, that's actually what we do up here every single Sunday, is that we unpack from the scriptures one or more ways that we are called to stand out from the world as followers of Jesus. That's always our goal in one way or another. But at the same time, I also think there are a handful of especially timely ways that we are called to be different as followers of Jesus. I think there are some ways that right now, in the year 2023, our world is especially in need of a city on a hill. So what we are gonna do for the next five weeks in this series is we're gonna look at five specific ways that we as followers of Jesus can and should look different from the world around us. How we can become the type of church that the world needs, even and especially right now. So beginning next week, here's the plan. Here's the roadmap for the rest of the series. We are gonna look at how we can become a community of orthodoxy in an age of ideology, a community of presence in an age of distraction, a community of intercession in an age of complaint, a community of self-responsibility in an age of blame shifting, and a community of peace in an age of panic. That's where we're headed for the next month or so. Now, before we go any further, before we talk about some specifics of all of that, let me just try to get ahead of something really quick. All my cards on the table, our, all our cards on the table as a pastoral staff, we are not doing this series because I don't think our church is good at being different from the world. That's not why we're doing this. That's not it at all. In fact, it's rare that a week goes by where I and the other leaders of City Church don't hear stories and reports of just how refreshingly different you guys are than the world around you. How God is using your commitment to living differently in order to draw people in and show people what following Jesus is like. One of the most consistent pieces of feedback that we get from people who are new to City Church is that the community here is just different. It's just different. They don't say that the music is awesome, even though I'm sure Brandon would love to hear that. They don't, they don't say that the teaching was awesome as much as that would make my ego feel good to hear that. What they say is they showed up here and the community here was just different. 
And that's why they stuck around. So that's not the angle for any of this. I'm not doing this because I think we're bad at it. Rather, what we are attempting to do over the next five weeks is this. We simply want to be reminded of that call for us to be different as followers of Jesus and highlight a few ways that maybe we haven't considered that we need to be different as of yet. So the call for followers of Jesus to be different from the world never changes. That's consistent from generation to generation to generation down throughout history. But what we're saying is that at the same time, we believe that in each new generation, in each new cultural moment, so to speak, there are certain ways that our differentness as followers of Jesus is especially needed. Given the shape of the society around us, the things that people are most inclined towards right now, there may be specific ways that our world needs examples of a better way forward than anything they've tried so far. And that's what we want to lay out for you in this series. Make sense? Okay. So here's where I want us to go for the remainder of our time this morning. I want to take you to two different places in the scriptures and talk about two different things. I want us to talk about why we are different first. So I want to give you one more reason that we should be different as followers of Jesus. And I think this is really, really vital for us to get. So it actually goes back further than Matthew chapter 5. It goes back further than the ministry of Jesus. It honestly goes back further than the New Testament or the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to God's character the very character of God. So I'm gonna read it to you from the book of 1 Peter chapter one, but this idea is throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New. 1 Peter one says it like this. Peter says, but just as he who called you is holy, he's talking about God there, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And those are words of God himself there. Be holy because I am holy. I'm holy. Okay, so I think sometimes people get a little bit intimidated by that word holy within Christendom. To, to many of us, the word holy sort of reeks of moral superiority and self-righteousness. But do you know what the word holy means? It means different. The word holy means different. The word there in 1 Peter in the New Testament is the Greek word hagias. For something to be hagias means that it is set apart for a special purpose and is therefore different and distinct and distinguished from everything else around it. So here in 1 Peter chapter 1, the instruction to followers of Jesus is this. Be holy, be different, be distinguished, be set apart because God is holy. Because God is all of those things, because he is different, because he is distinguished, he is set apart. The reason that we are called to be different from the world is simple, because his holiness is deserving of our holiness. His distinction is deserving of our own distinction. Difference actually starts with God's own character. When we encounter a God who is altogether different from anything else the world has on offer, we begin to want to become different than anything else the world has on offer in return. Holiness starts with God himself. And listen, all of that shapes the type of different that we become. Because the point is not just to become a bunch of unique individuals. Our world is full of people 
who so badly want to be unique individuals that they end up being more or less identical to all the other people that want to be unique individuals. Let that sink in. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just becoming a unique individual. We're, we're not talking about becoming unique for its own sake. We are talking about being set apart and different in a way that God himself is set apart and different. We're talking about being holy, about being set apart for a specific God-given purpose, about becoming a city on a hill, about allowing our light to shine before others that they might see that light and give glory to our Father in heaven. That is why we choose to be different as followers of Jesus. So the second thing I want us to talk about, more practically, I think, is what makes us different exactly. What makes us different? How do we become different from the world around us? For that, I want you to look with me on the screen at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. There, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So verse two there is just Paul's own way of articulating our big idea from this morning, that followers of Jesus should be different than the world around them. He says, don't be conformed, be transformed. That's his language. That's his same way of saying the same thing. But I also want us to focus in on verse one of what we just read. Specifically, I want you to notice in verse one, the word therefore and the phrase in view of God's mercy. Therefore, and in view of God's mercy. So before Paul says anything about us needing to be transformed, us needing to be different, he says that all of this actually comes from understanding God's mercy towards us. And if you've ever read through the book of Romans prior to chapter 12, you know that there are 11 full chapters about God's mercy towards us in Jesus. I want to just read you some selected passages from those 11 chapters because I want to make sure you understand what Paul is doing here in Romans 12. So let's set it in its context. Here's Romans 3. These will be rapid fire. These will be in the notes later. Don't feel like you have to write them down. Here's Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans chapter 4, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans chapter 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 says, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Romans 7, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 8, one of the best chapters in my opinion in all of the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's my point. Romans chapters 1 through 11 reads like a greatest hits of all the most incredible things that God has done for us in Jesus. And then after all of that in those 11 chapters, Paul takes a deep breath at the beginning of chapter 12 and says to his audience, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all of that that has been accomplished for you, here's how I want you to live. Here's why it is so important that we understand that. If you miss the words therefore, and in view of God's mercy in Romans chapter 12, you completely misunderstand your relationship with Jesus. You completely misunderstand how we become different and why we become different as followers of Jesus. You start to believe that difference is something you have to achieve rather than something you are given. If you miss those two pieces of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, you get a completely deformed view of what the Christian life is all about. Difference is not something that God asks you to do because he needs you. It's something he gives you the ability to do because he loves you. Remember, be holy because I myself am holy. That's what God says. Be holy because I am holy. That is a very different way of thinking about difference as a follower of Jesus. So here's how we become different as followers of Jesus. According to Romans chapter 12, we familiarize ourselves with God's grace towards us in Jesus. And then, according to Paul, we, quote, renew our minds daily in it. We familiarize ourselves with God's grace and then we renew our minds in that grace. By, by renewing our minds, here's what I think Paul means. We practice recognizing that that is the one true story about the world. And therefore, that is the one true story about us. When we make financial decisions, we renew our minds in the gospel. When we make relationship decisions, we renew our minds in the gospel. When we make decisions about sex and sexuality and sexual expression, we renew our minds in the gospel. When we make decisions about how to spend our time and who to spend our time with, we renew our minds in the gospel. In each and every arena of our life, we allow the good news of Jesus to be our homing device. We, we return over and over again in our lives and in our minds and in our hearts to ask the question, who is Jesus? What has God done for me in and through Jesus, and how does that shape what I choose to do and not do in this situation? We practice doing that over and over and over again in our lives. That is, in essence, what following Jesus is, reminding yourself of the gospel and renewing your mind in the gospel. Now, I realize that's theory, so let me do my best with the little bit of time we have left to give you two tangible case studies of how that might look in practice. Here's how I think we are called to renew our minds 
in the good news of the gospel in light of God's mercy. First, let's just go ahead and deal with a really important one in our day and age, and that's our sexuality, our sexual expression. When making decisions that have to do with sex, it is easy, I think, to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Whether you say it out loud or not, whether it's at a conscious level or a subconscious level, the pattern of the world with regard to sexuality sounds something like this. Who I have sex with doesn't really matter. Sex is just recreation for adults. As long as I enjoy it and the other person gives consent, there's nothing wrong with whoever I want to participate in it with. That is the pattern of this world. Here's what renewing your mind in the truth of the gospel sounds like. In the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, my body was not made for sexual immorality. It was made for the Lord. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God raised Jesus from the dead and he will raise me too. So sex is actually way more important than just play for grown-ups. It is a way of uniting my entire person, mind, body, soul, spirit, psyche with another human being to experience true intimacy with that person. So should I take my body and offer it to anyone and everyone? No, because I and my body are far more important than that. Now, just as important, I think especially when it comes to the area of sexuality, is renewing your mind in the gospel retroactively when shame about sexual sin sets in over your mind and heart. Then, in those situations, we renew our minds in truths like Romans chapter 8, where it says that neither height nor depth, angels nor demons, life nor death, nor anything else in all of creation is able to separate us from the love and acceptance of God in Jesus. So, so whereas the pattern of this world would be to run and hide from any amount of shame, whatever it takes, the gospel would tell us that there's no actual reason to run and hide. But in both cases, proactive and retroactive, what we are doing is we are renewing our minds and the truths of the gospel over and over again. We are rehearsing the one true story about the world and how we think about ourselves and how we think about the world around us, how we think about our decision making. Okay, one more example. This time let's talk about finances. When putting together a budget for ourselves or for our family, or when making decisions about how to spend our money, we could allow ourselves to conform to the pattern of this world, which would sound, at least internally, something like this. The more stuff you have, and the better and nicer stuff that you have, the more happy you will be as a result. That's the pattern of this world. So max out that credit card. Buy the biggest house you can afford in the nicest neighborhood and then some. Spend as much money as possible on fun gadgets and technology and experiences because that is where life and joy and meaning is found, is in those things. That's the pattern of this world. But here's what renewing your mind in the message of the gospel sounds like. In the words of Luke chapter 12, it sounds like realizing that, quote, life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. Life does not consist, life is not found in how much stuff you have. 
or how nice your stuff is. The message of the gospel reminds us that our money was not given to us primarily for our own pleasure or our own comfort. It was given to us for God's purposes. And the scriptures tell us there is freedom in realizing that no amount of possessions will ever feel like enough. The gospel breaks that cycle of always needing more. It tells us that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Through the gospel, Jesus invites us into an altogether better way to view our money and our possessions as tools to be leveraged for God's purposes on earth. That's what it looks like to renew our minds in the good news of Jesus. And that is where the ability to live differently comes from as followers of Jesus.